Shalom, Shalom. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. I'm delighted to hear that you are drawn to the Jewish root that supports the grafted in branches. You know, Torah is central to properly understand and perform the will of Hashem, that is, God. It is crucial for us to understand theologically that the primary purpose in Hashem's giving of the Torah as a way of making someone forensically righteous only achieves its goal when the person by faith accepts that Yeshua, Jesus, is the promised Messiah spoken about therein. A Kodesh Holy Convocation series. My name is Ariel bin Lyman Hanavi, and I'm the author of the commentary. Note that all quotations are taken from the complete Jewish Bible translation by David H. Stern, Jewish New Testament Publications Incorporated, unless otherwise noted. The written commentary for this Mikra A Kodesh uh, study was updated on September 29th of 2008, and that's basically just part A that I needed to update. Part B and Part C um, are um, the original audio recordings that I made a few years back, but I felt it necessary to update this Part 1 of this commentary. Let's start with our opening verse, our opening Pasuk, uh, that I've chosen for the Mikra A Kodesh series. Leviticus 23 verses 1 and 2 read in English, Adonai said to Moshe, Tell the people of Israel the designated times of Adonai which you are to proclaim as holy convocations are my designated times. And in Hebrew we read, Vaidaber Adonai el Moshe Lemor, Daber el Bene Yisrael Vaamarta Alehem, Moade Adonai Asher Tikrau, Otam, Mikrae Kodesh, Alehem Moadai. This particular study will center on the festival known as Yom Kruah, Day of the Awakening Trumpet Blast. It's alternately known by its calendrical title of Rosh Hashanah, which really refers to the head of the year. However, um, during the legislation of Moshe, the um, recognition of head of the year wasn't as predominant as the uh, Day of the Awakening Trumpet Blast. We have a... Um, a set of verses that I also want to read later on down into the uh, chapter of Leviticus here in 23. Let me read those three verses here for you. Verses 23 through 25 read, quote, Adonai said to Moshe, Tell the people of Israel in the seventh month, on the first of the month, is to be for you a day of complete rest for remembering a holy convocation announced with blasts on the shofar. Do not do any kind of ordinary work and bring an offering made by fire to Adonai, end quote. That was lifted from David Stern's complete Jewish Bible translation. And the reason I point that out earlier on in the commentary is because we're going to find out that when we exegete these particular verses, that the word shofar is going to become the point of question. In fact, if we look at our contents, if you have the written version and you're following along with this audio commentary, which of course I always recommend that you grab the uh, written version so that you can study along with the uh, audio if you can. If you look at the contents, we're on the middle of page one. The contents of this particular commentary will be as follows. We'll have part one, a ram's horn versus a metal trumpet. Part two, we'll speak on Yom Truah directly. Part three, we'll talk about the sounds of the shofar on Rosh Hashanah. And then part four, we'll talk about the shofar and spiritual warfare. Sounds like it's going to be an exciting study. As I mentioned already, there are going to be three parts to the study, and the first part is really the newest addition to the, uh, the audio set. Parts B and C have already been pre-recorded and that dates way back to um, 
probably 2006 or 2007 when I made uh, Part B and Part C available. But it's Part A here that I am redoing for this 2008 year. So, without further uh, delay, let's start with Part 1. A ram's horn versus a metal trumpet. Now, the reason I needed to update my commentary was because of a carefully worded and timely email that a reader of mine sent in. So I wish to begin this commentary today by fielding this particular question sent in by one of my readers. To be sure, I must admit that were it not for this particular question causing me to have to go back and do some further research in this area, my commentary wouldn't have received a necessary update to this particular topic. So I want to thank the reader for sending in the question and in doing so causing me to go back and do some further research. I want to admit that as a Torah teacher I don't have all the answers. And so I believe that when um, the opportunity presents itself for me to make corrections to my commentaries that I avail myself of those opportunities whether they come by way of my own study or my way of uh, one of my students challenging what I've said in one of my previous commentaries. Here we go. Here's the question. Quote, Thank you, first of all, for your podcasts and available teachings and your kind spirit. May Abba bless you for the truths of his word filtered through Messiah and his Ruach HaKodesh for his glory. Amen. I have a question for you regarding the shofar. You stated and written that Torah explicitly commanded Am Yisrael to sound the shofar on Yom Tullah. And you've said it's in the original text to blow the shofar. I've checked several texts and cannot find the word shofar in the passage of Vaikra, which is Leviticus, or Bamidbar, which is Numbers, regarding this holy day. Both English and Hebrew have shofar absent in their texts and translations. Tullah is used, indeed, but a simple search on that word in the scriptures via software programs shows it isn't explicitly tied to the shofar only, but includes, includes other uses. His question goes on to say, I know Tehillim, Psalm 81, utilizes shofar for the month, but not for the day of trumpeting, shouting, and blasting. Please explain... And he concludes by asking, or by uh, thanking me, he should say, Thank you again for your contribution to the kingdom. Chag Sameach to you and yours in our beloved Messiah. End quote. So there's the question. I did not alter it in any way. That's exactly how it appeared in my email. Here's my response. And interestingly, I already wrote to him and, and let him know that my response to him was actually part of my commentary. So you're reading my response as I'm teaching this commentary to you, or as I'm reading it to you. This was my true response to him. Firstly, I wish to thank my reader for bringing my error to light. In previous versions of this commentary, and even still later at times throughout this teaching, you're going to hear me state that a shofar is to be blown on Yom Tullah. Um, I didn't really feel it was necessary to update the entire commentary, since uh, if I can just get out the um, the, the uh, the message right here up front in part one that I'm already making some corrections and as you listen to the rest of the commentary you'll know that I've already made that disclaimer. So um, I want to thank him for bringing this to my light or bringing this to my attention. Um, you're going to hear me state that a shofar is, is to be blown on Yom Tullah and to be truthful I still believe that a shofar can be blown. However I have since gone back and attempted to correct myself to state that a shofar might be used but does not exclusively have to be used on this festival day, just like Judaism does today. To be sure, as we're going to see, the text may allow for a chatzotzara, which is the Greek word, I'm sorry, which is a Hebrew word for the metal trumpet. The Greek counterpart is salpinx. Um, we're going to see that this, word can, this, this uh, instrument can be used as well as the shofar itself. So what I started out is with a computer-assisted word search of the Hebrew of the Tanakh so that I can exactly see where these two words show up. Here's what I found out. Um, if I do a computer-assisted word search, I end up with the following results. The metal trumpet, the Chazotzara, shows up 27 times in the Hebrew of the Tanakh from Genesis to Second uh, Chronicles. While the ram's horn, the word shofar in the Hebrew, is actually found 63 times. So clearly we can see right up front that the shofar just may well be the instrument of choice that's found in the Tanakh. Clearly it, it outnumbers the chazotzara uh, the by way of sheer raw data. But does that warrant it? Um, its use in the Yom Tullah ceremony? We'll have to find out. 
In an effort to address this question would do scholarship, because I must admit that I'm not the subject matter exter uh, the subject matter expert on these particular topics. So I'm going to um, choose to lift a significant quote from the Jewish Publication Society, the JPS Commentary, to Leviticus that I own. Um, this one was, in fact, authored by Baruch Levine. And speaking on the topic of the first day of the seventh month, here's what we read. Quote, first, Baruch uh, restates the verse as it shows up in the, uh, the, the commentary and the uh, translation of the passage. Verse 24 of chapter 23 is the Pasuk in question. It reads this way in the JPS, quote, In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, a sacred occasion commemorated with loud blasts. End quote. Now, actually, if I go back and read that Pasek in uh, the JPS, it mentions the word shofar. But in uh, Baruch Levine's commentary, he opts out the word shofar and simply puts the phrase loud blasts. Here's his commentary. Note the same system of dating in verse 5 above and subsequently in verses 27, 33, and 39. The Hebrew of this phrase loud blasts is zichron truah or a sacred occasion commemorated with loud blast. The remembering of the blast, or the memorial blast, is really, if I could um, translate it myself, but he puts as it means literally commemoration by blasting, the shofar. He goes on to say, the same designation of this occasion occurs in Numbers uh, 29, verse 1, and we're going to look at the verse in a moment as well. The sounding of horns had various functions in ancient Israel, as well as elsewhere in the ancient Near East. Usually, it was a method of assembling the people before moving on to a new location, or of mustering troops for battle. There were cultic uses as well. Baruch goes on to say, horns were blasted when sacrifices were offered, and they were used by temple musicians. In our text, the horn was blasted to announce the forthcoming pilgrimage festival, which occurred two weeks after the first day of the month. Notice so far that Levine has not really designated whether or not these horns were um, man-made instruments, such as metal um, trumpets, or whether or not they are animals' horns, such as uh, the ram's horn or the later... Um, uh, what do we call it, the uh, the Yemenite horn that we're so used to seeing, the big long one in most shuls today. Um, Levine goes on to say, uh, where do we leave off here, which occurred two weeks after the first day of the month. Thus we read in Psalm 81 verse 4, or Psalms 81 verse 4, literally, quote, blow the horn on the new moon, on the full moon, for the day of our pilgrimage festival, end quote. We're going to read that verse in Hebrew a little later on. Chapter 23 presents this occasion as a day of rest and sacred assembly. And Levine concludes by stating, It is not conceived of as a new year at this stage, but rather as an occasion preliminary to the Sukkot festival. End quote. Footnote number one shows that I lifted this um, information from Baruch Levine's commentary to the JPS commentary to Leviticus, Jewish Publication Society, 1989, page 160. Okay, let's keep going with my own commentary. Now, in an effort, again, to address the reader's question, the question, of course, if you remember, is really, do we know for sure that a shofar is commanded to be blown in the Leviticus passages commemorating the um, festival here, or is Leviticus telling us or commanding us to blow the metal trumpet, or both? Is it one? Is it the other? Is it both? Which one should we be using? And why does Judaism today use the one that they use? That's kind of how I perceive the question to be stated. <clears throat> Again, my commentary reads this way. Um, what I want you to do as students is I want you to notice carefully the, the verse from the book of Psalms that um, Levine um, made mention of earlier. This Pasuk from the book of Psalms reads this way in English. Blow the horn, and um, uh, Baruch has it as, uh, blow the horn on the new moon, on the full moon, for the day of our pilgrimage festival. End quote. But um, the careful student will go back and check the Hebrew of this verse, which is what I usually do, and notice that the word rendered horn in this Pasuk is in fact shofar. So if you have my written commentary, we're near the top of page 3, you have the Hebrew written there, and in case you can't read the Hebrew script, I have transliterated it for you, that's my own transliteration there below. It reads this way, quote, Tik'u v'chodesh shofar b'kese le'yom chagenu, end quote, that's the Hebrew. Therefore, in answer to the student's question, if we just kind of hit it head-on, although the text in Leviticus merely recognizes that an awakening sound is to be made, without clear reference as to whether we use a ram's horn or a man-made trumpet, the chazotzerah, 
just looking at this text alone, we can safely state that the psalmist must have envisioned a shofar being used to announce both the new moon, notice, for so the text directly states, vachodesh. Chodesh is the Hebrew word for mo- uh, month. Chodesh refers to the turning of the moon. And as well, the psalmist must have envisioned the festival of Yom Truah, for so the text directly states, le Yom Chaginu, le Yom on the day Chaginu of your festival, or of our festival, really. So, even though the text in Leviticus 23 does not explicitly mention the shofar, and even though the psalmist may have been speaking with poetic license, which, you know, the book of Psalms is, is a poetry book, the genre is poet, poetic, therefore it's, it's not unusual to find, you know, a statement made that's not necessarily trying to establish halakha as so much as it's just poetry. And so, perhaps the psalmist is trying to allude to the fact that the shofar truly was being blown in his day on Yom Truah, or maybe he is just using poetic license to um, speak of the shofar uh, as an instrument that could or should be blown, although it perhaps may not have been. We don't know for sure. And so that's kind of where I... um, where I've made my statement in this particular paragraph of my commentary. But if we're just going to use the raw data to state it plainly, remember, the Hebrew of Leviticus 23.24 and Numbers 29.1, according to my reader, as he so aptly pointed out, they omit the word shofar. The Hebrew word is not there. It just says a commemoration of blast. Remember the, the, uh, um, what did uh, Baruch, uh, uh, Levine uh, term it as Zichron Truah. So the word shofar doesn't show up. However, Psalm 81 verse 4 does in fact add the word shofar. We just read it there up, up top. So what could we say from there if we were simply going to go with the Peshat, with the literal, and we were to assume that the psalmist was not speaking in hyperbole, we could safely say that um, the, uh, the shofar should be blown on Yom Truah. However, it's helpful as biblical students if we go back and check other texts, particularly in this case, the Greek counterparts to the Hebrew originals. What am I referring to? You know, the LXX, the Septuagint. FYI, what does the, uh, the Septuagint say in these particular verses? Well, the Septuagint inserts the Greek word salpinx at Leviticus 23.24. So, that's interesting that we have the very first commentary to the Hebrew version, as it were, inserting the Greek word for horn. If you look at footnote number 2, at the bottom of page 3, you'll see that the New Testament Greek lexicon defines this Greek word salpinx as, quote, trump, trumpet, or bugle, end quote. So, it, it actually inserts the man-made metal object in Leviticus 23:24 passage. But let's keep reading. So what does this say? Does it say that the animal uh, horn was actually used on Yom Truah and that the metal objects may have been used somewhere else, or is it vice versa? Were both being used? We're not sure just yet. Historically, we have to admit that both could have been, could have and very well have been used during the time of Moshe, and that only today Judaism favors the shofar. Keep in mind that Judaism has is, is evolved just like any religion, just like any culture. And so things that were... Um, uh, commanded and, and present in Moshe's day have gone through necessary evolutions and changes. To be sure, if we were to go off in a different direction, which I'm not going to this time, but just briefly, I want to remind the readers that in the book of Numbers, um, chapter, let me pull it up here, Numbers chapter um, 10, I believe, let me turn to it, I was just looking this up the other day, in Numbers chapter 10, uh, Starting in Pasuk 1, and this is out of the JPS comment, uh, J- I'm sorry, this is out of the uh, Stone Edition Tanakh, we read in the English, quote, Hashem spoke to Moses, saying, Make for yourself two silver trumpets. Make them hammered out, and they shall be yours for the summoning of the assembly and to cause the camps to journey. And in the Hebrew, we read, Vayidabar Adonai el Moshe lemor, Asei lach shtei chatzotzorot kesef. The chatzotzorot kesef is translated into English as two silver trumpets. And so, um, two silver two silver objects. And so now we see that these are man-made objects that are being um, commanded in um, Numbers chapter 10. If we keep going down in Numbers chapter 10, we see that on Pasuk 10, verse 10, 
Moshe has commanded, On a day of your gladness, and on your festivals, and on your new moons, you shall sound the trumpets over your burnt offerings, and over your feast peace offerings. What is Hashem commanding Moshe? Well, we are commanded to blow these silver trumpets. The word chazotzerot, um, again, which is the plural for chazotzerah, shows up in this Pasuk, in verse 10. So we're commanded explicitly to blow these trumpets, these silver trumpets, on the new moons and on the festivals. Sounds to me like we might have an answer to our question posed by our reader. Yes, we are supposed to be blowing the silver trumpets. And in fact, I believe he wrote me back and told me, Ariel, um, we have a clear command that we should be blowing the silver trumpets. However, my... Um, my uh, uh, answer to him, or I should say my, um, um, my uh, uh, what's the word, my disclaimer to his answer would be this. On the, uh, the Pasuk in question there, uh, if we back up two verses in verse 8 of chapter 10, it says, The sons of Aharon, the Kohanim, shall sound the trumpets, and it shall be for you an eternal decree for your generations. So thus we have a problem. We say we should be blowing the silver trumpets on the festivals and on the new moons, but the commandment here also specifies that the priests should be blowing the trumpets. It doesn't say the ordinary men, the uh, the uh, people like you and me, should be blowing the trumpets. So, if we're going to be biblical purists, we better recognize who the Kohenim and who the sons of Levi are before we start handing out the trumpets. So, let's go in my commentary. Again, Judaism today favors the shofar, that is to say the animal's horn. To be sure that many scholars, both Jewish and Christian alike, take the Leviticus passage to allow a reading that envisions interchangeability between the terms trumpet and shofar as opposed to either or, in my opinion, is evidenced by the variations between the translations that alternately insert the words trumpet and shofar into the Leviticus text, even though the original Hebrew omits any instrumental reference whatsoever. Again, pick up your average translations, Jewish and Christian alike. We've already seen what, hap what happens in the original Hebrew. And you're going to find that some translations of Leviticus will, will insert the word trumpet there. Others will insert the word shofar there. Uh, many Jewish translations are fond of inserting the word sh um, shofar in that text. David Stern's version, as I read earlier uh, in the opening of this commentary, in fact, inserted the word shofar in the text, even though the Hebrew didn't allow for it. So that's my point, is that they understand that, hey, perhaps shofar and trumpet were being used in the time of Moshe, and we just don't know uh, for certain if um, if it was an exclusive one or the other, but perhaps maybe both were being used. Even more germane to our question is the historic truth that differing communal individuals blew differing trumpets. This we know. We can uncover this information by studying the extant writings that have, have uh, survived down to this day, the Talmuds, the Mishnah, the Gemara, uh, Josephus. Um, I've just shown you here in Leviticus how that the priests are commanded to blow silver trumpets on the festival days, and yet the psalmist already talked about the shofar being blown. Thus, two possibly differing community individuals were, um, as it were, uh, designated to blow respective instruments. The shofar blowers were here, the trumpet blowers were here, they stood next to each other, and perhaps they both blew their respective instruments on the festival days and at the new moons. I think that's a strong possibility myself. The Israelite masses, however, the people like you and I, the commoners, we may not have been aware of the technical name for the wind instrument blown by the priests in the first place. You know, you see a priest in Moshe's day, he's holding a silver instrument. What do we call it? We call it a horn. The next day we see him holding a ram's horn, it looks different to us, but what do we call it? We call it a horn as well. So to us, they, they're both horns. So we may not have known the difference between shofar versus chasutzerah. That's my point. This possibility that I'm positing right now is supported by the account of the Battle of Jericho, and we can read this, in which the shofar plays a central role in that particular story. You can go back and read the entire account for you. It shows up in Joshua 6, Pasuk 9, Pasuk 13, and Pasuk 20. Also, Joshua 6 verses 4, 6, 8, and 13a. But um, what we have is this shofar playing a central role. If you remember, they, they went around Jericho seven times, and then on the seventh time, the seventh day, uh, one, once every day, and then on the seventh day, seven times, and then they blew the shofars. The, um, the people blew the shofar in the account, if you go back and read the story. The people, the commoners. But the priests blow what's known in Hebrew as the shofarot hayovalim. Now that's in plural. The shofar yovel is the singular, and so what is this? What is this special shofar that the priest is blowing? We're not exactly sure. The, this is a non-priestly source. 
Leviticus would be a priestly source. This uh, account by Joshua, Joshua not being a priest himself, this is a non-priestly source. And what does it do? It recognizes that the priests resort to a special kind of shofar. And unfortunately, only the priestly tradition identifies it with the chatzot the trumpet. Now I say unfortunately because here we have the text in Joshua calling it, and you can go back and look up the text if you'd like, it uses the Hebrew phrase shofar. However, the priestly texts and the priestly uh, tradition that we have handed down to us through the extant writings identifies this particular trumpet, or this particular instrument, as it were, the shofar, it identifies it with the chatzotzerah, the trumpet. It's almost as if to say they're the same thing, just calling them by different terms, you know, technical terms. So this can be a little confusing to you and I, the commoner. What do the rabbis do during this, uh, or for this particular um, textual peculiarity? Well, of course, they escape this textual dilemma by positing that the trumpet was only used during the time of Moshe, but not by Joshua in the later generations. The quote, or the information, uh, can be found in the Sifra to Numbers 75. So, what are we to make of the reader's question, and what is my final answer? Well, I don't have a final answer per se. My answer is meant to allude to the fact that either A, in Moshe's time, we possibly had both trumpet and shofar, that is to say, chatzotzara and shofar being used, and then as Judaism has evolved down to the time period that we have today, um, the chatzotzara has perhaps fallen into regular use, and, or I'm sorry, fallen into disuse, while the shofar has kind of risen to the forefront of being used in all of our festivals. And you know what? There's nothing wrong with that, people. That's perfectly fine. Judaism has a right to allow for that evolution of the commandment, particularly when the commandment is um, vague or is not explicit that we have to sound one or the other. Now again, my reader pointed out that the commandment is to, in Numbers chapter 10, that we are to have the silver trumpets being blown during the festival. But my caution again, or my, my um, um, proviso to this particular posic, or my, as I would call it, my, um, um, uh, uh, what do we want to say, my exception clause, uh, my only um, stipulation, my only regulation, my only caution to just interpreting the passage in Numbers 10 as relevant for today's communities, is that this was given to the priests, and we don't have the, um, the priestly cult in operation today. Visit any shul and you'll see. I mean, you have people who say they descend from priests, but there's really no recognized priestly cult in operation in Judaism today. Thus, the passage Numbers 10 finds itself in a dilemma as well. It can't really be carried out to its exactingness, such as I believe my reader is alluding to in his second email, which I have shared with you here in my commentary. Nevertheless, the conclusion to this part A is simply, or part 1 is this, by the time of the rabbis, of the Gemara, which is much later, um, we're talking um, Second Temple period, um, and later on, the time of the Gemara spans, I mean, goes all the way up into the uh, post-destruction of the Temple, and the time period known as the Amoraim. What we're really finding out, if we look at the um, extant data that's available to us in the rabbinic writings, is that the distinction between the shofar and the trumpet was no longer known, and that's the problem. They were simply both known as trumpets. Um, and, you know, we have the Hebrew word shofar and we have the Hebrew word chatzotzerah, but they're both simply called trumpets in the the latter writings. And so, perhaps we may not know exactly which instrument, if any, is commanded to be blown on Yom Tovah. My own personal halakhic preference: don't make a big deal out of it. If you have a shofar and you take your shofar to shul on Yom Tovah and you blow it, and in your heart you're serving Hashem, then I believe you're doing a good thing. Conversely, if you have a silver trumpet at your shul, at your synagogue, and on Yom Tovah, and on the new moons, you're blowing the silver trumpet, well then good for you as well. Because are you serving Hashem with your heart as you're blowing the shofar? If the answer is yes, then Baruch Hashem, who am I to, 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 um, to halakhically judge you? because you're blowing one or the other instrument. And so that might really be my own personal halakhic perspective on this particular part of my commentary. And with that, it's about 30 minutes into the commentary, and um, we'll call this Part A. I believe it's Part A, or at least it's, it's uh, the first section of Part A. 
So continue listening for part two of this commentary to Yom Troah. Part two is entitled, Part Two, Yom Troah. I really do want to talk about these, this, this festival, Yom Troah. All right, Day of the Awakening Trumpet Blast. Even within the title, Day of the Awakening Trumpet Blast, we actually blow shofars by preference. If you step into any synagogue, both Messianic as well as uh, non-Messianic, during this holiday, you're going to find them blowing shofars. Now, there are trumpets that are blown, but primarily shofar seems to be the preferred um, instrument for blowing. Let's read the verse again. Adonai said to Moshe, Tell the people of Israel in the seventh month, the first of the month is to be for you a day of complete rest for remembering a holy convocation. Watch this. Announced with blasts on the shofar. Do not do any kind of ordinary work and bring an offering made by fire to Adonai. That's Leviticus 23, 23-25 again. Let's talk about Yom Tu'ah in this next section, part two. And this is the... Um, um, next uh, paragraph entitled Part 2 Yom Troah. With the coming of the fall part of the year comes the final series of festivals as detailed in our theme passage of Leviticus 23. Now in rabbinic thinking these last festivals are known as the season of repentance, the season of the Shuvah. Now many scholarly studies have been done on the feasts of Hashem. To be sure I would recommend for you, the serious student, to go back and conduct further research on your own, you know, consult some various rabbinic commentaries and such to gain an accurate and complete historical perspective on these feasts, if you'd like. However, my own commentaries are not designed to be comprehensive works on the feasts. Rather, I only want to supply the reader with some messianic insights, which I believe, perhaps, will enhance the average reader's knowledge of biblical things. The feasts of Adonai are meant to serve as daily, monthly, and yearly reminders, I might add, of the wonderful wonderful historical plans that Hashem has had for all mankind, both Jews and Gentiles. We in the church usually only think of the feasts as past requirements that the Jewish people had to obey, isn't that right? We, we, we've learned about the feasts in the church, but we don't usually find ourselves studying them any further than than then they point towards Jesus or Yeshua. Um, it's unfortunate that we don't take our studies much further than that um, because it is my opinion that the festivals are pregnant with the, uh, the work of Messiah. And if we were to study them more closely, not only would we learn more about Messiah, but we would learn uh, how this redemption reaches out to Jews and non-Jews equally, especially as we walk into the feasts. Anyway, um, the church feels it's no need, no longer a necessity uh, to walk into these festivals like the early first Christians did. Requirements which are now somehow spiritually fulfilled in the work of the Messiah uh, and consequently no longer pertinent for the non-Jewish believer is how we deem the festivals. In a small way, the church is not entirely wrong. Okay, Yeshua did come to bring to their fullest meaning the feasts that are that are listed right here in Leviticus 23. That's what he came to do, and that's how his ministry is to be seen. He did fulfill them. He brought the fullest intended meaning to the festivals. However, what I want to explain to the readers is the greater significance that Hashem had in mind when he instituted these holy gatherings in the first place. What Yeshua has done for us is just the beginning. I want to reiterate some of the things that I commented about in the overview again as we are entering into the final time period of the feasts uh, outlined in Leviticus, okay? Um, the festivals are festivals of the Lord and they are designed to teach us about our Lord however as we participate in them the Spirit of God would continually mold our communities and shape us and prepare us for not only what has come but to prepare us for what will come in other words and I'm getting a little ahead of myself but that's alright um, Yeshua fulfilled all of the spring feasts during his first coming. You know, Passover, Hamatzah, which is unleavened bread, um, Omer Reshit, which is first, which is counting the Omer, and then uh, Pentecost with the giving of the Spirit. Those first four festivals, you remember there are seven total, the first four festivals were fulfilled literally by Yeshua and the Spirit during his first coming. How much more can we expect our Lord to fulfill the final three festivals. We have Yom Truah, Yom Kippur, 
and Sukkot that are coming up, all within a two-week period, how much more shall we expect him to fulfill these final festivals with um, equal accuracy? So you see it's very important that we not only study them, but as the Bible seems to indicate, it's important that we continue to make them a part of our community on, on, on an everyday level. In other words, we should really be walking them out because the Torah commands us to do so. Yom Truah is another of the designated meeting times that the people of Hashem, which includes Jews and Gentiles, were to remember and to meet on. Okay, In this particular case, with this particular festival, Yom Truah was just a day for meeting and remembering. That's how the Pasuk is, is, is understood in its normative sense. Meet and remember, and blow shofars. You know, the little verse of instruction that I quoted earlier reads just that way. The Hebrew word for day is yom. Right? It's a day, it's a yom. While the Hebrew word for trumpet or ram's horn is shofar. So that's that's where we, we get the um, the instruction to gather together and to blow shofars. The Torah instructs Am Yisrael, the people of Israel, to commemorate this day, which is the first day of the Hebrew month of Tishrei, with blasts. That's how we do it. And this blast is called, this, this, this sound that the trumpet makes, this blast is called Truah. Okay? That's why it's called Yom Truah, the day of the sound of the, trof- of the, of the trumpet, or the, the day of the sound of the shofar. Now, if you pull out your average calendar, doesn't matter whether it's Jewish or, or secular, you're probably going to see it called Rosh Hashanah, or Rosh Hashanah, right? However, I must remind you that the Torah refers to it as Yom Truah, or as the Hebrew literally reads, Zikaron Truah. Now, a memorial of blowing of trumpets, Zikaron, to Zachar means to to have something remembered. Zachar, remembered. Zikaron Truah, a memorial of trumpets. Rosh Hashanah, the term, literally means head of the year. It's from the Hebrew words Rosh, which means head or beginning, and Shana, which means the word year or repetition. So, some of you are asking, why, is it, why does this festival have two names? I mean, which one is it? Is it Rosh Hashanah or is it Yom Truah? Well, I'm going to let Judaism answer this question, alright? Judaism.com, uh, actually Judaism.about.com, has this to say concerning the origins and what some have termed the name switch. Okay? Quote, The origin of Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year, is biblical. You can look up Leviticus 23, 23-25. Quote, A sacred occasion commemorated with loud blasts of the shofar or the ram's horn. End quote. The Bible refers to the holiday as Yom Truah, the day of the sounding of the shofar, and Yom Zikaron Truah, the day of remembering the sound of the shofar. In Talmudic times, Rosh Hashanah became a celebration of the anniversary of the world's creation and a day of self-examination, repentance, and judgment. While the day was called Yom Hazikaron, day of remembrance, and Yom Hadin, judgment day, the name Rosh Hashanah, head of the year, which was first used in Mishnah, has become the most prevalent and Quote. That is taken from Judaism.about.com. You can see the actual footnote on the bottom of page 4 if you'd like to click on it and turn and read the entire article. Let's pull another quote from another resource just to get a second opinion, a similar opinion. This time Wikipedia reads this way, quote, Rosh Hashanah is the Jewish New Year. In fact, Judaism has four New Years which mark various legal years, much like 1st of January marks the new year of the Gregorian calendar. Rosh Hashanah is the new year for people, animals, and legal contracts. The Mishnah also sets this day aside as the new year for calculating calendar years and sabbatical or Shemitah and Yovel or Jubilee years. End quote. That is uh, the footnote number two at the bottom of page four is uh, is taken from wikipedia.org and their commentary to uh, Rosh Hashanah. So, again, to many outside of Judaism, this juggling of biblical calendars can be quite confusing. There seems to be an opinion within Messianic circles, not so much within Jewish circles, because they understand that, that the, two, the two names and the two um, 
recognitions of the beginnings of the years or the multiple years do not compete with one another. Thus, the beginning of the spiritual new year takes place in the spring, but the beginning of the civil new year, or, or maybe even the secular new year, uh, begins in the fall. And in Judaism, we see no conflict between these two times. Just like, again, in um, in your average um, Gregorian calendar, we know that the beginning of the calendar year begins in January, but the fiscal year begins at a different part of the year. And we have other new years that begin in, or new beginnings that, that start at different times of the calendar year, and no one seems to be confused. Yet, within Messianic circles and within church circles, there's where I seem to find the greatest amount of consternation with people saying, oh, the rabbis invented the, 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 the Rosh Hashanah as the head of the year, when clearly the Bible says that in the spring, in the, in the month of Nisan, that is the beginning of the year for you, just like the Bible says in the book of Exodus. So, again, uh, this, this phenomenon of the... Um, of the, the of the competition of the years seems to only exist unfortunately within church circles to include messianic circles it is my aim to um to uh clear up some confusion by explaining that there is no competition between the beginning of the spiritual new year in the spring and the beginning of the um uh, again uh, agricultural um legal new year or political new year in the fall okay Allow me to lift a significant quote from a well-respected web source for clarification on this issue, all right? Biblechronology.com has this to say about the synchronization of the multiple biblical calendars that we encounter in the text, okay? This next quote um, is significant. It covers two or three pages. is taken from Biblechronology.com. This is what they have to say, quote, the divine calendar before the Exodus. What we're going to talk about briefly for the next page and a half or so, two pages, is um, the biblical calendar. But what we're going to notice is that the Bible calendar, the biblical calendar, is a lunisolar calendar. And so it becomes somewhat confusing as to should we start the years according to the sighting of the moon and the beginning of months, which would, of course, um, um, apply to this particular festival, Yom Tov, which not only begins the new year but begins the month. Or should we um, have another reckoning? Let's let's look at this real quick because it does bear relevance to our study. All right, they start out with a question by uh, BibleChronology.com. Later Jewish calendars are lunar, so was the first biblical calendar also lunar? That's their first question. Two bullet points: a lunar month. A lunation, the time between new month, new moons, is just over 29 and a half days. All right, these are just definitions of terms, basically. A lunar month. This 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 information that I'm telling you right now is common knowledge, uh, especially if you remember from your science class. A lunar month or a lunation is the time between two new moons. It's just over 29 and a half days. Twelve lunations give a lunar year of just over 354 days or 12 times 29 and a half is equal to 354, okay? Evidence for a lunar year of 354 days is found in the first mention of dates in the Bible in the story of Noah and the flood. So let's look at that. In um, Genesis 17:11, we have the flood starting, and it was on the 17th day of the second month on the 600th year of Noah's life. In Genesis 8, verses 12 and 13, we see that the flood ended on the 27th day of the second month on the 601st year of Noah's life. Using the information that the Bible just gave us, we can see that the flood ended one year and ten days after it started. So, if we take the days inclusively, we'll see that it lasted one year and eleven days. You follow me so far? If the biblical year was 354 days, then the flood lasted 365 days, which... Isn't that interesting? That's a solar year. Wow. Okay, let's keep reading. Here we see that the first dates in the Bible link the lunar calendar to the solar year. Remember how I said that the Hebrew calendar is actually lunisolar. All right? It does begin its months using the moon, but the sun plays an important part in the cycling of the months and in the cycling of the years as well. It's not completely lunar and it's not completely solar like our Gregorian calendar seems to be basically solar. But it's influenced by the lunar as well. The Hebrew calendar of old is lunisolar. Alright, let's keep reading. Um, the 
uh, let me back up to that last sentence. Uh, here we see that the first dates in the Bible link the lunar calendar to the solar year. This shows that the first biblical calendar was lunar and that the biblical year at this time lasted 354 days. It probably had 12 months alternately 30 and 29 months long which would factor out to be 12 times 29 and a half which is equal to 354. Most dates in the Bible use this very same divine calendar that I just described. Okay, let's talk now about the civil calendar before the Exodus. Because remember, in the book of Exodus is where God tells Israel, after they are to come out of Egypt, to begin their new month, starting with the month of, it was termed Aviv, um, but it later became termed Nisan uh, after the Babylonian exile. They they changed the names of the months to, to, um, to uh, um, what's the term I want to use? Uh, Arama Aramaic names? Aramaic, yes. Hebrew and Aramaic names instead of the, uh, the original names that they were given. This next uh, little section is entitled The Civil Calendar Before the Exodus. However, dates between the end of the flood and the exodus indicate that the divine calendar stopped for the unreckoned days of the deluge, but dates relating to the flood do not indicate that the calendar the Bible uses at that time stopped for the deluge. Instead of using the divine calendar, all flood events use a civil calendar that doesn't stop. From the deluge unto the exodus, the civil calendar was therefore slightly ahead of the divine calendar. Okay, the civil calendar is God's lunar or lunis, lunar or lunis solar calendar. The flood is one of the few times Bible dates use the civil calendar. Kind of interesting, huh? Moshe is writing the story, so you have to wonder why Hashem would have him use slightly different time reckoning um, during his narrative. The, let's look at this next section entitled The Divine Calendar After the Exodus. All right, Remember, there's something significant that takes place in the book of Exodus. After the Exodus, God instructed seasonal feasts to Israel. Now this is where most people pick up their support for a new year starting in the spring. Exodus 12:2 quote this month shall be unto you the beginning of months it shall be the first month of the year to you end quote also look at Leviticus 23:4 these are the feasts of the Lord which ye shall proclaim in their seasons all right end quote however the lunar year remember we com we're comparing this to the um um we're comparing our lunar year to uh, the lunar months, let's say the lunar year has, oh, that's right, we're comparing the lunar year to the solar year, I'm sorry. Lunar year has only 354 days, which is 11 days short of the solar year of 365 days in which the seasons depend, right? The seasons, four of them, uh, what do we have? Winter, summer, spring, fall. Um, winter, summer, they're not in that order obviously, but we have four seasons and the seasons are marked off according to the sun because the earth rotates about the sun in a solar year, in, you know, in one year's time it comes full circle in 365 days and that's how we chart off our seasons however the earth rotates on its axis you know, within a 24 hour period and the um, sighting of the moon gives us our lunar months which is, I already mentioned, it's about 29 and a half days so let's compare these two. We got a lunar year and a solar year. Because of the 11 day difference between the two, this means the lunar calendar moves ahead of the seasons by 11 days each year. Autumn feasts would end up in the spring in just 16 years and vice versa. See the problem? So we can't have a completely lunar calendar. We can't have a completely solar calendar. Especially within Jewish reckoning when God tells us to use the moon sighting to chart off our month beginnings and the beginning of one of the years, or you know, some time of the year, uh, a civil year. But yet, he tells us to keep track of the seasons as well in Leviticus. So, obviously God must, because God created the, the heavenly bodies, he knows how they are going to work together. The lunar and the solar are going to work in tandem. In fact, uh, let's, let's give an, a supposition. Let's suppose you were born in summer, on first on the first of July in your own personal lunar calendar, okay? After sixteen years, your birthday would be in the winter around New Year in our solar calendar. 
See the problem if we stuck to one or the other. If we just held a lunar or a solar, um, we would run into problems. So to solve this problem, and again, this hit, this bears uh, relevance for understanding why um, the the calendar works the way it does. To solve this problem, God therefore told Israel to start its calendar year in the same season each year. In the harvest season that starts after the spring equinox in Israel. This meant that Israel had to insert an extra month every two to three years. And if you'll know anything about the Jewish calendar, you'll know that the month of Adar has an Adar Aleph and an Adar Bet two Adars, all right? an, extra, an extra month. All right, early Bible chron chronographers suggest that they inserted extra months in the third. Remember they said they had inserted an extra month every two or three years. In, in other words, what we end up with is, our, uh, is a leap year in our own um, Gregorian calendar, uh, you know, where we have that ec those extra days in February. But in Jewish reckoning, we end up with a whole extra month uh, every two to three years. So according to this fact, early Bible chronographers suggest that the ancients inserted extra months in the third year, the sixth year, and the eighth years of every eight-year cycle. So by inserting three extra months of 30 days in every eight years, Israel actually added 18 months in every 48 years. The 49th year was then left out of the calculations because the Bible already said that it was a special sabbatical jubilee year. Remember in Leviticus 25 we have the, the year of jubilee uh, mentioned. So 18 extra months were added every 49 years. Okay, This calendar that I'm describing that Israel was using, we call this calendar lunisolar. L-U-N-I-S-O-L-A-R. It's not completely lunar and it's not completely solar. Right? It doesn't com depend completely on the moon, and it doesn't depend completely on the sun. It's both. It's lunisolar because it is because it is a lunar calendar that keeps in line with the solar seasons by the intermittent addition of these extra months, and that solves the problem of God's instructions both to use the moon to start the months as well as the moon to start the beginning of the year and then also telling us to celebrate the festivals in the seasons Passover always is going to fall in the spring okay it always will if we didn't have the adjustment of the calendar then sooner or later Passover would end up in the winter time okay and that would be contrary to God's um, messianic redemptive plan. So adding extra months keeps the calendar in line with the solar seasons, but the true length of a lunation, remember, the true length of a of, of the time that it takes for us to see the, 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 the same face of the moon that we see uh, approximately 30 days earlier, the, um, the true length of a lunation is 29.53 days, not 29.5. And the true length of an astronomical lunar year is 354.367 days, not 354. Okay? So we see that this means that every few years, an extra day has also to be added to the end of the year to keep in line with the true astronomical lunar year. Um, and, and again, this, this is all... Uh, this is all trivial if you are a scientist. This is all understandable. God's, um, God's clock is perfect, but we still uh, have to uh, line ourselves up with his clock, and in doing so, we have to adjust the way that we uh, reckon his time. We have to understand that um, uh, the sun, the moon, and the earth um, are the measuring instruments given to us to help us set our clocks, but even still, um, what do we end up doing? We have to adjust our clocks every year. We have to adjust our, our calendars every few years um, just to line up with God's system. That, that's basically all we're talking about. Um, these facts that I'm giving you also mean that before the Exodus, the lunar calendar had fallen behind the true astronomical lunar year by about one day every three years, and the new year did not always start at a new moon. However, after the Exodus, the new, remember, because after the Exodus, God gave them new instructions. 
After the Exodus, the new lunar calendar had to come into line with the astronomical lunar year so that the extra months would then bring the lunar year into line with the solar year. And that's basically how it is right now. We've got, within Jewish reckoning, the lunar, um, the lunar year and the solar year lining up matching one another so that again uh, we may not trust the reckoning that the Jewish people have been keeping to but we need to understand that they got it from God himself and because God handed it down to the Jewish people and they were able to uh, preserve it so carefully uh, I'm not saying that it's not without mistakes but basically the Jewish calendar keeps the biblical festivals in the part of the year where they are supposed to be therefore Passover on a Jewish calendar always falls in the springtime of the year and Rosh Hashanah and Yom Troah and, and, and um, uh, Yom Kippur and the such, they always fall in the fall part of the year. They, they always line up that way, okay? Um, and this was, again, because God designed it to be that way, and yet he also designed the uh, uh, moon to, uh, to be seen from the earth in such a way as to kind of cause a slight confusion as it lines up with the way the earth goes around the sun. Let me read the last sentence so I can keep going here. However, after the Exodus, the, lo the new lunar calendar had to come into line with the astronomical lunar year so that the extra months would then bring the lunar year into line with the solar year. That meant that the calendar had to advance 10 days to start the new year following the Exodus at a new moon. This last section in the BibleChronology.com article talks about the civil calendar after the Exodus and... Um, we talked about the civil calendar before the Exodus, the divine calendar after the Exodus. Let's conclude this section on the uh, cycles here with the civil calendar after the Exodus. The start of the civil calendar year was determined by the first appearance of the crescent new moon. However, at the precise time of the true astro astronomical new moon, the moon and the sun are in, uh, are in conjunction. Again, if you're a scientist, this, this is all familiar information. Um, because the moon and the sun are in conjunction, they're in line, you can't see them. If the astronomical new moon occurs, for instance, at, our, at or near sunset, then the moon sets over the horizons at, ex at exactly the same time as the sun, in which case you can't see it because there's no visible crescent. That's the point. That's why it's so difficult to spot the new moon. That's why the whole new moon sighting is 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 very difficult to pin down the day or the hour. Hint, hint, hint. After that, you know, after the um, the moon lines up uh, in conjunction, after that, the path of the moon starts falling behind the path of the sun, right? Because they're the the this is really neat if you think about it and see this in a model. You've got the sun in the middle. You've got the Earth rotating around or or um yeah orbiting the sun, but you've you got the moon orbiting the Earth at the same time, all right? After the path after the conjunction, um, the path of the moon starts falling behind the path of the sun, and the moon sets about 45 minutes later each day. It's almost like it starts lagging, right? The crescent moon, or I should say the crescent new moon, can only be seen when it grows bigger as its path falls behind that of the sun, and as the light fades in the dusk after sunset before moonset. You see? And again, all of this is just scientific study. The, the, the facts that I'm quoting to you. God set it up this way. Israel's new day started at sunset, right? That's when Israel's new day starts. According to the Genesis model, in the evening and the morning uh, were day one. So we have evening, since it's recorded first by Moshe in the Genesis account, um, with with with, uh, with with the way God had set up the uh, uh, the way the new moon should be spotted, and with Israel starting their days at sunset, the crescent moon could not be seen until after the next new day had started, which was at least one day after the true astronomical new moon, depending on the timing of that new moon and the weather conditions, right? So it seems to be somewhat problematic. I mean, keep in mind that this is all before the invention of watches and, and digital time keepers and things like that. God says, Israel, here's how I wanted you to do it. And yet, uh, we, we, have to, we have to respect and understand um, the, uh, the intricacy and the details that went into to figuring this whole thing out. You know, this meant that when Israel introduced its new civil calendar at the start of the year after the Exodus, as we read about, 
It was always at least one day behind the divine calendar. Wow. Always one day. So it's it's interesting that uh, even in Israel today we have holidays that are, uh, for instance, this holiday, Yom Tovah. If you look at your biblical calendar, it'll show that this holiday is a two-day festival. Rosh Hashanah Day 1 or Rosh Hashanah Day 2. And many of the festivals also are celebrated with two days. Uh, especially if you live outside the land of Israel, what we call the Diaspora. They're celebrated with two days. So, um, and, and then to top it all off, we have this this um, idiom attached to one of the festival days, uh, one of the one of the uh, festival's um, um, occurrences, and it's known as the day in which no man knows the day or the hour, which brings up all sorts of possibilities considering what Yeshua said in Matthew 24. So this is going to be a fun study indeed. At this point, I'm going to call it Part A with about 45 minutes into the commentary, and... Um, um, but not before I read this last paragraph on the bottom of page 6. When we return with part B, we'll stop. start at the top of page 7. Uh, speaking of this particular festival, Yom Truah or Rosh Hashanah, religiously, this day has many significant themes attached to it, not just blowing of the shofar. And I want to list the other names of this feast and then quickly explain the messianic significance to each one. In this way, I believe that many Christians or non-Jewish believers uh, can quickly identify with the scriptures and the people of Israel. So we're going to do that in our next section of my audio commentary. So stay tuned for part B to the commentary to Yom Tovah, the day of the awakening trumpet blast. <laughs> 